Did you happen to catch the Discovery Channel's Shark Week a couple weeks ago? Uh, this year, they've kind of amped it up a little bit to this annual adventure. They've actually invited some celebrities to go deep with them and to check out these fascinating creatures. One of those people was Mike Tyson, and they actually build that episode, Tyson versus Jaws. Now, uh, it's just absolutely ridiculous, but uh, even Shaq took his spin and into the water, overcoming some fears to, to see these animals and swim with them. Well, this morning, uh, this uh, passage we're going to look at might feel a little bit like a hook from Mike Tyson. We're going to look at some pretty challenging words that Jesus offers. And one of the things we've tried to do over this past year is we've journeyed through the Gospel of John, looking at the life and teachings of Jesus, is, is to not shy away from some of the challenging words that he had for his original hearers and also for us today. Today we're going to see the fierce battle that exists in every one of our hearts. It's a battle between evil and righteousness. It's a battle between light and darkness. James, the half-brother of Jesus, used these words to describe the battle that exists in all of us. In James 1, 14 and 15, he says, Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Sin might feel like you're swimming in a tank full of sharks. There's a progression, a progression that happens with sin. First, there is a desire for sin. And then it manifests itself with by the birth of sin. And then finally, there's death through sin. And so let's not get ahead of ourselves. Maybe let's just start basically with an understanding of what sin actually is. Well, the Evangelical Dictionary of Bible Theology says this about sin. Sin is a riddle. It's a mystery. It's a reality that eludes definition and comprehension. Perhaps we most think of sin as wrongdoing or transgression on God's laws. Sin includes failure to do what is right, but it also offends people. It's violence and lovelessness toward other people and ultimately rebellion against God. Further, the Bible teaches that it involves a condition in the heart which is corrupted and inclined toward evil. What is sin? Simply, you might say that sin is doing anything that God doesn't want us to do. It's not following God's design for us or his desires for us. I think that's why Paul simply says that sin is falling short of the glory of God. In the 90s, there was an actual TV show called When Animals Attack. And basically the whole show was live animals kind of mauling or destroying human beings. I mean, you grab some popcorn, invite the family and like enjoy it, right? I mean, but it was this real life footage of animals attacking. In one episode, there was a man who had a lion on a chain walking him around like a dog. It was crazy. And so the man thought that this animal was safe. In fact, during this episode, a woman comes out with a shampoo bottle and begins shampooing the lion. And the lion has about this much patience for that stuff. And it knocks the shampoo bottle out of her hand and attacks her. And the people watching it were shocked. They're like, I can't believe the lion did this. It's like, duh, what does a lion do? It's a predator, right? That's what it was created for. The guy who was the trainer actually said, you know, I'm so shocked. I've had this animal since he was young. The truth of the matter is that animal had had him since the animal was young, right? I think that's a picture of what sin looks like because you and me, we can kind of be lulled into thinking that sin is a little bit removed from us, that we can hang on to sin like an animal on a chain. But that's not what happens. Sin, just when the right moment happens, attacks us. 
and it has us in its grip. I said there's a lethal progression to sin. First desire for sin, then birth of sin, death through sin. Today we're continuing to look at John chapter 13. If you have a copy of the Bible, why don't you turn there with me? It's a scene that we visited last week where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. And in this moment, we see Jesus demonstrate humility. We hear Jesus desire purity in our life. We see him set an example for us of how to serve the needs of others. We also hear him call us to mission. This passage continues the scene of Jesus at the Last Supper. He's there with his disciples. And in this moment, Jesus once again predicts him's betrayal. We're going to parallel this moment in the life of Jesus with a fictional story. A story about a guy named Frank. Frank's just a made-up name, but his story might sound very familiar. Frank is married to Alice. Together they have three young children. They live in a nice subdivision, and Frank has a good job. He's a a medical products company salesman. A a lady recently joined Frank's company as the receptionist of his his department, and she seems pleasant. She's young. She's, you know, fairly attractive, and she catches Frank's eye. You know, it was just small, uh, casual talk at first when she just got to know about Frank and Frank got to know about her. And one day he just mentioned, hey, would you ever want to get a drink after work? Seemed innocent, just something friends would do. On one occasion, after having a drink for, for after work, the woman asked Frank, do you, do you really love your wife, Alice? It was in that moment that Frank had a choice to make. Frank chose poorly because a few days later, while Alice was out of town with the kids visiting her parents, he said to this young lady at work, would you like to grab some dinner tonight? And invited her over to his house. What seemed like an innocent dinner ended up in adultery. Let's look at John 13 and pick up our text, actually with some verses we read last week, beginning in verse 18. Jesus is talking here and he says this, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture that says, He who shares my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after saying this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss for which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom he loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter mentioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he meant. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? This is not the first time where we see Jesus predicting his betrayal. But in this moment, Jesus says that his betrayal is a fulfillment of Scripture. The disciples were each chosen by Jesus. uh, This included the betrayer. And the big question for the disciples in this moment at the Last Supper is, who is Jesus talking to? The disciples at this point had followed Jesus for three years. They did everything together. They were close friends of Jesus as well as they were close friends with each other. The travel, the teaching, the miracles, the conflict with the Jewish leaders. They were a band of brothers. They seemed inseparable. And so when Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me, that seemed impossible, almost unbelievable. Matthew was there in that moment. He was an eyewitness account. And he says this in 26, 22 of his gospel. 
They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Each of the disciples, including the betrayer, looked inwardly. Can you imagine how confusing this moment must have been for them? Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for Jesus in this moment? John captures the moment by saying they they stared at each other. I think it was a blank stare. I think it was one of those moments where you could hear a pin drop. Betrayal is sin. Can you imagine committing this sin in the face of Jesus? John claims that Jesus is troubled in spirit. And that same phrase is the way that Jesus is described when he sees Mary grieving at the loss of her brother Lazarus in John chapter 11. It's the same way he's described when he talks about his upcoming death in John chapter 12. Jesus is stirred up. He's agitated. He's disturbed. He bears witness to betrayal. Rodney Whitaker writes this. In his anguish, we see revealed the effects of our sin on the heart of God. From the first rebellion in the garden right up to the moment, most recent moment that you and I committed sin today. Next in this moment, John actually begins referring for the first time in his gospel to the disciple whom Jesus loved. John mentions this this individual many times between now and the end of his gospel. One of those accounts is when after Jesus had resurrected, John and Peter went rushing toward the tomb. But John doesn't use his first name. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Most scholars think that this was a reference to John himself. And although in his gospel, John doesn't really speak a lot of of, um, documented accounts about this with Peter, in these moments, he's really highly critical of Peter. He certainly records all the blumbering and and all the the stumbling that Peter seems to do. John kind of presents himself as the superior disciple. Jared Borchard, uh, a commentator, he made an observation that really caught my attention. He says, The two portraits of John and Peter, when taken together, epitomize the two sides of most followers of Jesus. The side that at times can model for others the life intended, Jesus intended for his disciples, and the side that struggles to overcome failure and well-meant understanding. In this moment, the disciples are reclining at the table, a typical seating for such an important Jewish event like the Passover meal. They probably were not ordered the way that da Vinci painted them. Look at his famous picture here. Uh, Da Vinci kind of groups people in certain places for certain reasons. You can actually research why he chose to portray the disciples the way he did. Jesus is in the middle with that blue and red kind of clothing. And to his left, as we're looking at it, there's a group of three disciples. And that's to represent John, Peter, and Judas. Judas is in the orange with green outside and has it holding of a money bag. That's how da Vinci portrayed it. But he wasn't there, right? And so most scholars think that actually the bottom chart is the arrangement of how they were seated that night in the Last Supper. The other disciples were on the right or left, but in the middle was Jesus And to his right was John, and to his left was Judas. In the ancient world, both the right hand and the left hand were places of honor. Ironically, the left was the place of most honor. Peter must have been close enough to John to whisper to him to say, like, ask Jesus which one he's talking about. And John's reclining next to Jesus. Some people think he's kind of leaning up against Jesus at this seat of honor. And Judas is in the seat of even more honor. 
John is literally laying up against Jesus. And, and, and most people think that John parallels his close relationship with Jesus to the close relationship that Jesus has with the Father. And in this moment, John asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? Listen to Jesus' response in verse 26. Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. Jesus is very obvious in this signal he gives to identify the betrayer, but there is some ambiguity and even some discreetness of this moment for the other disciples. Peter may have not known what was happening in that moment. He's not mentioned in the rest of this account. John certainly knew what was happening because he asked Jesus and Jesus gave a response, but he seems to do nothing about it. Judas is keenly aware of what's happening. He instigates what uh, John Piper calls history's most spectacular sin, the murder of Jesus. The other nine disciples seem to be absolutely clueless. And we wonder it's because maybe they just heard bits and pieces of the conversation around the dinner table that night. Or it might be that they had in mind the things of men, not the things of God. Jesus, in Matthew's account, says, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. I believe this is a final act of love between Jesus and Judas. It's almost like Jesus is giving a final appeal to Judas to change his mind. What if Judas did not choose to take that bread? What if he did not go through with what was happening and unfolding in his life? What if he said, it's not me. I love you, Jesus. Well, clearly the desire for sin was there for Judas, but it hadn't given birth yet. In this moment, Judas has a choice. But Judas fails. Just like fictional Frank in our story, Judas sinned. Sin is birthed. And this sin of Judas was not adultery like fictional Frank. It was betrayal. Judas took the bread. Borchard again writes this. He says, rejecting Jesus was squarely on the shoulders of Judas. Judas was hardly a puppet. Satan did not need magic to enter Judas. All Satan needed was permission to take control. John writes in verse 27, Satan entered him. That should put chills on every person in this room's spine. Some say in this moment, Judas really didn't believe in Jesus. He lost his faith. Others think that Judas did fully believe, but, or that he never fully believed in Jesus. That question is probably uh, space for another sermon. But in this moment, we actually see that Judas has let sin give birth in his life. And now he's at the hands of Satan. And there's no worse place for any of us to ever be. This is actually the only time in the Gospel of John that John mentioned Satan by name. From Scripture, we know that Satan is a celestial being who opposes God. He's the source of sin and all evil. He is referred to as an enemy, the evil one, the devil. He is called the accuser, the adversary, the tempter. He caused Adam and Eve to fall to sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. He even tempted Jesus to sin in Matthew 4, even though Jesus never did. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The world is Satan's playground, and he's looking for somebody to join in. John Piper has kind of scoured 
what's the word I'm looking for, scoured the scripture and just tried to make a list of the way that Satan kind of entices us towards sin, his behavior. This is his list. He says, first of all, Satan lies. He's the father of lies. Satan blinds the mind of unbelievers. Satan masquerades in costumes of light and righteousness. Satan does signs and wonders. He tempts people to sin. Satan plucks the word of God out of people's hearts and he chokes faith. Satan causes some sickness and disease. He's a murderer. He fights against the plans of missionaries. Satan accuses Christians before God. Looking at that list, just don't you want to go home and take a shower after hearing it? Let's see what happens in John 13 now in verse 27. Jesus said to Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Jesus says to Judas, go do what you're going to do quickly. Judas had made up his mind at this point. There was no turning back now. Scripture must be fulfilled. It was God's timing. The other disciples are confused about this moment, probably because they had not been paying that much attention or the fact that Judas was in charge of the money for the disciples. And it was common on a night of Passover to go and to give money to the poor. They also might have thought that he was going to buy supplies for the rest of the weekend because the, the party had just begun. The Passover meal was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But we also know earlier from what John told us that Judas had a desire for sin. John alludes to his character back in chapter 12, verse 6, by saying Judas was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The other disciples were somewhat unsuspecting. They uh, didn't really understand what was going on in Judas's heart. They just made an assumption that because he was with them, he was really with them. We should be careful not to judge people, whether just because they show up for church or maybe just because they don't. We should be careful to make assumptions and judgments about people to the good or to the bad in any situation. The disciples think Judas is just doing his duties for the group. But it turns out he was actually putting into motion the events which would lead to the death of Jesus. The events that would save all humankind from their sins. It begs the question. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Did he do it just for the money? Matthew records that because Judas agreed to betray Jesus and turn him over to the religious leaders, he was given 30 pieces of silver. Was it just greed? Or was it maybe that Judas was just disappointed in who Jesus was? Was he expecting some larger political or religious, um, maybe fanatic, who would lead against Rome, who would rule with power and, and with might? Is that why he did it? Or was he just simply tempted by the evil one? I don't know, but I do know this. Sin can sneak up on you and me just like it did fictional Frank and just like it seemed to do Judas. Verse 30, John makes a solemn statement. He says, it was night. And this provides finality to the scene. It provides finality to the events in Judas's life. Death comes through sin. Certainly John wants to provide somewhat of a timeline, but what he's referring here is to this theme we've seen all throughout John of this conflict between light and dark, between good and evil, and the battle that's going on in Judas's heart right in this moment. 
John 11, verses 9 through 10, speak of this this battle. It says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daytime will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. For Judas, night was here. I don't know about you, but my mom always said to me growing up, nothing good happens after midnight. And that just became this proverbial curfew for me. Like nothing good happens after midnight, so be home by midnight. And she's pretty much right. I mean, at dark, at night, there seems to be something that takes place. It seems that like we lose accountability. We, we start to lose rational thought. We can lose our willpower against sin. This could be a picture of the darkness in Judas's soul. That darkness is the symbol of gloom, of oppression, of sin and judgment. For a moment, let's go back to our story from Frank. What's happening with fictional Frank? Well, Frank realizes that he's made a huge mistake. And so when he returns to work on Monday morning, he looks the receptionist in the eye and says, it's over. I'm not going to pursue this relationship. We're done. And so when he comes home from work that afternoon, Alice, his wife, actually meets him at the door and she has some questions for him. The neighbor that day had said, hey, who was the woman that was over visiting you guys on Saturday? And she knew she had been out of town. And so she questioned Frank, is that the receptionist from your workplace? Are you having an affair with her? Well, Frank knew that he was caught red-handed. And so in that moment, he fesses up, he comes clean. And he tells Alice what he did and he begs her forgiveness, but she'll have none of it. She packs the kids up and she returns back to her parents. Frank wants Alice back, but only three months later, their marriage is dead. You know, the story of Judas ends in death as well. That very night, he does betray Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. And in Matthew 27, it describes the next morning, Judas is filled with regret. And he rushes back to the religious leaders. He wants to give them back the money, but they will have nothing to do with it. The deed has been done. And Judas leaves that scene and he goes and hangs himself. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves today is, what can we learn from this story about fictional Frank, maybe more importantly, what can we learn from the life of Judas? And I would sum it up to say this, don't give Satan a foothold. Paul said those words in Ephesians 4, verse 27. When I think of a foothold, I actually think of that's what it looks like when Satan enters us, just like he did Judas. We have to understand that we're not talking about a lion on a chain here. We're talking about a fierce battle for our very hearts. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. So we have to face this enemy with a game plan. We don't want our story to end up like fictional Frank or Judas either. So let me give you some practical steps that you and I can take if we don't want Satan to have a foothold in our life. And the first action step would be to pray, to pray. Pray that you will not be tempted. Even though we will all probably be tempted, we need to remember temptation is not a sin. It's what we do when we're tempted that matters. And I would encourage you, when you feel temptation coming, pray to God for help. Pray that he will strengthen you in your weakness. It was just a few hours later after that meal when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. He's gone there to pray. And he says to them these words, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to encourage you to pray and ask God to give you clarity about 
What kind of foothold Satan might be trying to get into your life? What's your thing? What's that area of vulnerability for you? For Frictional Frank, it must have been adultery. For uh, Judas, it must have been greed. Maybe for you, it's that you covet your neighbor's Mercedes. Maybe you place your kids' sports activities over worshiping God. Maybe you sit and gossip with other people at lunch at work about the others that you work with. I would encourage you to pray boldly for God to reveal anywhere any sin or any way of Satan has a foothold in your life. And I would encourage you to ask him to keep your desires for sin at bay. If you want to avoid Satan having a foothold in your life, pray. And then second of all, I want to encourage you to repent. The reality is, is that we will sin. We all sin. It's not a matter of if, it's really a matter of when. But don't be swallowed up in sorrow or despair when you actually do sin. Just because you failed yourself, you failed others, and certainly you may have failed God, deal with it. Some of you have been like holding sin in your life for way too long. And now today is the time for you to come clean. I love David as an example in scripture. He was described as a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't perfect. He sinned just like you and me. In fact, his sins are recorded in scripture, but also his repentance is recorded there too. Look at Psalm, verse 50, uh, Psalm 51. Listen to David's word of contrition and repentance. He says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desired faithfulness even in the womb you taught me wisdom in that secret place cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness let my the bones you have crushed rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity create in me a pure heart O God renew a steadfast spirit within me do not cast me from your presence or or take your holy spirit from me but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. When you sin, repent to God and ask him for your help. Ask for forgiveness for those that you might have hurt as well. Sin does not have to lead to death because Jesus died so that reconciliation with God and with others could be possible. So seek his cleansing and his power. If you don't want Satan to have a foothold in your life, pray, repent. I'd also encourage you to practice avoidance. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I love the picture of Joseph in Genesis 39, where Potiphar's wife was continually begging him to come to bed with her. And he kept declining, declining. And at last, he just ran out of the house to avoid her. I would encourage you to stay away from sin. Don't let Satan lure you in. Don't watch R-rated movies with explicit scenes. Choose your profession based on what it can do for your family, not how much money you will make. When you're using the internet, don't go to places that will cause you or tempt you to lust. And also don't play the comparison game of what you see on social media, which can often breed coveting. Tell the kids that Jesus comes first regardless of how important they might think their activity is. Just say no to those gossip gatherings. 
avoid the birth of sin in your life. I don't get any immunity just because I'm a pastor. Temptation is as real for me as it is for you. And so for me, a time from when I was a little boy, I memorized a verse that has been helpful. I use it even to this day. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which reads, no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way of escape so that you could be able to endure it. Pray, repent, practice avoidance. And I'd also encourage you to seek community. The wisest person that ever lived said these words in Ephesians 4. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help him up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Support and accountability can help you. And you can find those things by joining a small group, by signing up for a support group, by seeking Godly counsel and godly advisors. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. A message like this might feel like a punch to the jaw. It should for all of us because that's how serious sin is. It's so serious enough that you and I need to have a game plan. And it starts by just identifying where that foothold might be. When you came in here to Newburgh uh, to worship today, you should have picked up a card and just asked you to spend some time identifying where that foothold is. If you're worshiping with us online, you should be able to find that card in the chat. And we just created a, a, some space right here in this service for you to think about where is Satan trying to get a foothold in your life or maybe where has he already? And for you to do some business with God so that you can identify that and create a game plan. It starts first by prayer, asking God for his wisdom and help to see it, and then his strength to overcome it. It also includes repentance. And you might take this moment just to acknowledge, God, I have failed in this area. I have birthed sin. And then know it leads to death. In fact, it led to your death. And I am brokenhearted that I've failed you and others in this way. You might use this quiet time just to pray a prayer of repentance like David prayed in Psalm 51. Maybe you need to think about the places you should stop going, the people you should stop hanging out with, the people you need to avoid because you see it as a foothold in your life. Maybe you need to look at the back of the card where we've provided just some helpful places that you might find Jesus with skin on, some community to help you in this battle against sin. We have people who are prepared to just talk with you right now. All you have to do is text now to 812-858-8668. Our care team is ready to, to pray with you and to walk alongside with you and to join you in the battle against sin in your life. Also, small groups and support groups and our, our great counseling services here at Crossroads are available to you. For whatever hurts and hangups and habits you might be dealing with right now, we want God's help in your life. Use these quiet moments to think about the action step you need to take and ask God for his help.
takes a lot of courage to talk to God about some stuff like that. And uh, I'm sure 90 seconds wasn't enough time. I'd encourage you to use your journal and keep leaning into how you can remove these footholds in your life. But I want to leave you just with some hope. Here's the hope I want to let you know today is that you're not alone in this battle. That Jesus came to this world to destroy sin. He died for sin, but he died to conquer sin. He came back to life to show that he is victorious over sin and death. And that's the power that we can live with to face this battle. We're not alone in that. That's why John later in the New Testament, 1 John 4, 4 says, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And he is squarely talking about our enemy, the devil, has no place of victory over us because of who lives inside of us, and that's Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Monday morning, I went out on my run. I was thinking about this passage, just asking God to speak to me. And one of the songs that came on my earbuds was a song that just reminded me that I have strength to fight this battle from who's inside of me. And it reminded me how I fight this battle. And it's a really simple chorus. We thought we would just sing it as a song of hope and victory today. Just simply says this, it's real easy. This is a simple chorus that says, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. You might try it with me, come on. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. Next part is just real simple, it says this. It says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. 